As we start the new year, we are focusing on preparation. Perhaps you are creating vision boards, setting new intentions for the year ahead, preparing to make some changes for your self-care or organization systems. New years often mean the goal of leaving a state of chaos as much as possible and starting the new year more prepared for what is to come. But how to prepare for the hardest what if there ever was. For many of our listeners with chronic illness, feeling hopeful and prepared for the possibility of end of life might seem near impossible. But now, with organizations like Lola there to guide you, that isn't the case at all. Welcome to Wondercast, a community collaborative podcast supporting families navigating the complexities of chronic illness. Today, we open season five with the incredible organization known as Lola. Esther Pippoli, the owner and founder of Loss of Life Advocates, or Lola, shares her personal journey and the creation of this incredible organization. Lola provides support and guidance to families navigating end of life transitions and losses. Such a gift to the community. This is Esther. Well, my name is Esther Pippoli, and I'm the owner and founder of Loss of Life Advocates, also known as Lola. I'm based and live in my hometown of San Antonio, Texas. So we are really proud of our Spurs number one pick that we got this year from the NBA. But yeah, so we I live here. Something unique about me is I am I am a widow and I tried to live by myself. After 26 years of being married to a very amazing man, I tried to do the widow thing, live alone, and couldn't do it. So I ended up living with my son and his wife. We have a generational home, and I get to pick up my grandson every day from school, six years old, Noah, and I love to cook. So I am the cook Monday through Friday, and my kids take over on the weekends, and it's just people ask, how do you do it? And I say, I just like the chaos. You know, it's it's great, and it's a great balance. So that's a little bit about me and what people would want to know. I'm jealous of them having a built-in person to cook for them every night, Monday to Friday. That sounds divine. It's a lot of fun. Um, I get to meal plan and it's definitely, you know, family is everything to me. And you learn real quick when you go through a loss that that void, you know, that empty feeling. And so how do you fill it up? And a lot of people think they have to do it alone. And I think you can make up your own rules. So that's kind of what we did. And of course, the pandemic kind of helped that because we were all together anyway. So I love that. I love I love the multi generational home. So tell me a little bit about Lola, kind of how it came to be, and the client families that you support. So Lola, first of all, is my mother's name. My company is named after her. She was strong. She believed that knowledge is power. I started Lola in 2017, and to back up a little bit, I lost my husband and my father 63 days apart in 2014, both to cancer. And even as an adult child, I was the durable power of attorney for my dad and was making all the financial and medical decisions for him at that time. And I knew that he was going to pass away, but I did not know that in that same last year, my dad's life was the last year of my husband's life. And my husband passed away 63 days later, and it was really quick and fast. And I learned a lot and I made a lot of mistakes and my career was in benefits, employee benefits. And so I was you know, kind of coming from an employee standpoint, I, you know, lost my, my dad, my hero. I had lost my best friend and playmate and my husband. And I was alone in the world. It felt just very, very lonely. My mom died in 1999. So I was completely orphaned. What people don't know is that I, I self-funded Lola because my husband's life insurance didn't pay. 
he had died within taking out the policy within two years of taking it out. So they handed me back my premiums or his premiums and said, good luck. And I said, no, this can't be. My husband was an attorney. So I found some really great attorneys who fought for me. And 840 days after he'd passed away, we settled his estate and the lawyers took their hard-earned earnings of their money. And I took what was left and I started Lola. I went to a branding company and I said, I've got this idea in my head of how do I help people before, during, and after a life transition or a loss and take all my experiences and build them out into a business where people don't have to be alone in those moments when it's really scary and sad and it's confusing and let them know that they're not alone, that they have a soft place to land with me and it's confidential. So answering the questions that sometimes people, what I was looking for, you know, I I needed to know certain things and I, I had nowhere to go to and nobody to talk to. So Lola started in 2017 and I'll be entering into my eighth year in January of 2024. I'm super excited. Most people say, if you don't make it past the five-year mark, you know, you don't, you're not a business, you know, so now we can say we're a business. I have wonderful partners that I have that I work with. So Lola kind of came out of my own personal experiences and we work with employers and we work for with people in communities and nonprofits and organizations that refer families to us that need help, whether it's answering questions about what's going to happen at the end of life or what do I need to be prepared for or what how do I use my time wisely or what do I need to do about benefits? You know, what's going to happen after my spouse passes, you know, what what insurance, all those navigational things. So my benefits background really helps a lot of, of navigational for tools for families and stuff. But it's also, I find that I make new friends. I go through this end of life transition um, or a major life crisis, whether it's a major cancer diagnosis or a brain injury or a stroke or heart attack or Lou Gehrig's. And those family members, I become an extended part of their family where I'm getting the calls at nine o'clock at night saying I'm scared, you know, or this is what's happening. And they just don't know who to talk to and who to turn to. So I have extended family with all of um, my clients. That's so wonderful. Now with Lola, especially because of the closeness that it was in your own life and how you wished that you had had those tools, how do you feel like Lola supports families best when they're navigating end of life? I think most of the questions that come to me are in two different categories. One is, how do I emotionally prepare myself and my family? How do I have the conversation? How do I start it? And the other side of it is the business side of navigating the benefits, my funeral. Like, you know, how is this going to be paid for? What's going to happen after I, if I'm the breadwinner or if my husband's the breadwinner, how am I going to navigate? And so we're able to walk a family through the insurance side of things. It's, I feel like it's like a bundle of a knot. You know, those rubber band knots where you take off one rubber band at a time. It's just a big knot and people don't know what to start with first, you know, what paperwork. Obviously, when somebody passes away, it's organically like people know, you know, they're going to go to a funeral home. They're going to make the funeral arrangements. Sometimes even just getting that conversation started with, can you make that call for me? Can you get that price? I start talking about budgets. You know, tell me what that looks like for you. Are you going to have to Cobra? You know, now that you're going to be the benefits, you know, that's going to be an expense if there's disability claims, you know, so, so it kind of falls into two categories. It's the emotional side of things with families, answering those questions and guiding them. Sometimes it's even helping them wrap their head around a statement. So after a loss where people always want to know what happened, you know, I mean, you know, they're shocked, right? When something, a diagnosis happens or something, it's giving them the statements on a note card or a sticky and telling them it's okay to say, I'm not okay. And it's okay to say, you know what? I, I really appreciate you being here but I need to be alone. I, I just had a client that her um, husband passed away and I called her just to check in yesterday. And she said, I'm just trying to figure out how to tell my best friend that she can leave because she doesn't want to leave me. She's afraid to leave me. She thinks I'm, you know, I'm going to be overwhelmed, but I really just 
want to be alone to be in my pajamas and cry with my kids. And we're kind of having to entertain at this point. So I would say that those are the two categories where families come to me and they're like, can you help me on the business side, making the phone calls, asking questions, being a communication point of contact for them. And then the other side of it is, can you help us navigate the conversations and the difficult things that we have to say to people to to give ourselves some peace? So I'm going to kind of approach this from both sides of the business and that you do. So kind of looking at the emotional side first, for families where maybe one person in the the support group or the caregiver group is aware of the reality of what's happening with the diagnosis, and then you have maybe the ill person or maybe another family member that is very resistant, how do you encourage families to start this dialogue? I'm assuming the earlier, the better, just in terms of making decisions and having everyone on board. How do you help guide that? So I usually do an initial consultation with the family without the loved one who's actually got the diagnosis. And I usually talk with them and say, tell me what your fears are. Tell me what your questions are. What do you want to gain out of having this conversation with your loved one? Because they they know if they have the diagnosis, they, they are fighting and they're on the hope train. And us coming along and asking these hard questions can seem like we're not on the hope train, that the reality train is hard. You know, you have to kind of be able to navigate both of them. But a lot of times I'm talking with the family first, the mother, a brother, you know, the wife and getting, you know, well, we don't know what to tell the kids. We don't know, you know, so it's giving them resources, but also saying, what is your outcome? What is the goal? And if it's to get prepared and to know where all the information is, then let's make it as easy as possible that you can get maybe the answers in five questions. I collaborate with them on breaking it down so that they're not asking so many questions that the person that's got the diagnosis is like, oh my God, they're driving me crazy. The other side of that is I will have a conversation with the person that is got the diagnosis and saying, you know, I'm, I'm here to be a confidential resource and you can tell me to go away, but what do you want to gain? What, what can I help you convey to your family? And so sometimes I'm the mediator. I'm that person that goes between to help them have the right things to say. Like instead of you're angry and you're upset, you know, the conversation starts and it becomes very inflamed saying, you know, what are the, what are the walkaway tools? What are the words right around or the things that we can do? So for some people, it might be, let's decide that we're going to light a candle when we have to have a conversation. And so the candles lit and everybody in the family knows, okay, we're going to have this conversation. Or for the person that's got the diagnosis telling them, you know, maybe it's putting your hand up and just giving them a, I need a minute, you know, giving them the tools and the words to say, it's a little bit overwhelming. Can you write them down? Can you help me navigate these? So we work a lot. We have our own personalized um, navigation forms. So a lot of times I will just tab the different pieces. We'll go through with the family. This is what you need to find out. Here's what we really need to get organized. And then they have kind of, instead of looking at a big tool of a, a bunch of questions, we can kind of you know lessen the pile. But the person with the diagnosis, 99% of the time will say, you know, Esther, I know that they know that I'm going to die. And I want them to know it's okay. I'm okay. I'm sad. But I also want to live and be as happy and use the time I best, you know, best used. So if I can have one person and maybe they only trust one person to have that conversation with them versus the whole family. I feel like you're being pecked like a chicken. And my husband used to say that to me. I feel like I'm being pecked like a chicken. Everybody's asking me for information. And everybody thinks, well, if I ask this question and you ask that question, it's not the same, you know, versus I just want to talk about one person. That's interesting feedback because you're right. In the perspective of the person, they're always getting asked, like, how are you doing? How are you feeling? Did you take your medication? What do you need physically? 
but also emotionally. And then you have all these physician questions and at your appointments and you're right. I didn't even, I like the analogy of pecking chicken because that's exactly mm-hmm. what it's like. Yeah. Now, when you have maybe a family member that say the patient is on board, their significant other is on board, have you found there sometimes to be a generational differences? Like maybe if there's a very involved grandparent that's still in the picture, do you find that you're having to lead the communication between the different generations? Yeah, yeah. Sometimes it is that way. It's funny to see a grandparent with an adult child that's maybe got cancer that has a teenager and they're all, it's like men are from Mars, women are from Venus. They're all trying to, you know, they're all having miscommunication all over the place. So it is having to remember that the grandmother is going to be a little more antiquated, that her processing is going to be differently. She's watching her adult child that's sick, but she's also looking at the teenager that still needs attention and asking the parent that's going through the diagnosis, how much do you want me to step in versus how much do you want do you want to handle on your own? How much is too much? You know, and and also giving the adult child the ability to to map out how much they want to be handled. But from a communication standpoint, it's usually the grandparent. They're the ones that usually reach out to me. My son is sick. He's had this diagnosis. He's a single parent. He's got a teenager. I don't know what to say. And I'm always saying, you know what, even though y'all are wanting to have this conversation and everybody's on board and knows what's going on, I don't know. I have mixed, I have a mixed bag here, right? Because Sometimes the, the grandparent can be resistant and the child can be wanting to have the conversation and then the teenager doesn't want to have anything to do with it. And then there's other times when it's kind of all mixed up. But I will say that when you do have a family, going back to your question, when you do have a family that is all on board and they want to have the conversation, it's a little easier, but the grandparent is the one that usually drives most of the conversation because they've got the most questions. Well, I feel like our culture is set that where if you are an elderly person, it's very standard practice to kind of start to get your affairs in order before you pass away. And I think that a lot of people that are maybe in that age gap already see friends and have colleagues and people in their lives that are doing that. So it's a much more less foreign of a a thought process. But then when you're looking at maybe someone in their 40s or 30s, then it's something that may not be a standard common practice. And I can see where the hopelessness would kind of fall in there, like you're trying to take away their chance of survival. And that's not the case at all. Right. I always remind people that any life crisis that you can get prepared for, I mean, it could be losing a job. It could be, you know, changing jobs. It could be your kids going off to college. It could be a divorce. It could be a diagnosis. It could be a traumatic loss. It could be dementia. You know, there's so many losses that if you focus on the life part of it, the living, and say, you know what, I'm going to do this now so that when I am ready, because and most people come and say, I've seen my mom go through this and she wasn't prepared, or I've seen my kids go through this and they weren't prepared. And I've, now I'm, I'm, I'm faced with this, the unknown. I can't get into bank accounts. I can't get passwords. I don't know how things were done. When they come at that angle, then they're more willing to kind of take that leap and do it. And so we've had a lot of adult children that watch their parents that weren't prepared and now they want to get prepared. And then we've seen a lot of parents that say, you know what, my kids aren't prepared and I'm prepared, but what if they die first? Like what's going to happen? So it really is trying to have the conversation with them to get them organized and say, you know, you you need to focus on the living part of it. hundred percent. I always tell people hundred percent, we're all going to pass away. So can we just all agree that we need to get prepared ahead of time? And if we've learned nothing from the pandemic, it was, wow, you know, people were being taken to the hospital 
and family members are watching their loved ones on FaceTime pass away and not realize that the next step was, okay, now we're going to send them to you know, the funeral home. Do you have anything in order? And the family's like, we don't even know how to get into the bank accounts. Like, we don't even know, like everybody was working virtually. So the pandemic really was a tool for us to learn that if you're not prepared and you don't have asked those questions of like, hey, if something happens to you and you go on that trip, where is all that stuff? Like who gets into your house and who takes care of your pets? Or if you're, you know, going down to get a prescription for a loved one and you get in a car accident and you go to the hospital, what's the backup? I think that 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 process of watching different generations, you know, whether it's the parents that are prepared or not prepared, I find a lot of the older generation are not prepared. They have and they wait until there's an actual diagnosis where they can't make a decision. And then the adult children are the ones having to figure out how do I navigate a guardianship or how do I navigate getting into bank accounts? So a lot of times it is that lack of preparedness on all ends. We see it all over the place. That's interesting. I wouldn't have even thought that was the case, but now that you say it and explain it, I can understand it a lot better now. Now, would you say that you have the majority of people reach out to Lola when they are already looking at maybe palliative care or a hospice situation? Or do you have them proactively reach out earlier in their diagnosis? So a little bit of both, but we do get a lot of people. We work really close with our hospice partners and palliative partners. So we get families in usually towards the end of life and a social worker has come into play and they're saying, hey, do you have your affairs in order? And they say, no, I don't. So that, and then they call us. But I will say that recently over the last year, we've had more families reach out to us at time of diagnosis. Our case managers are tagging them into calling us and saying, look, just go to a free workshop that they're hosting, you know, go and inquire, just look at their website, just engage with them sooner than later. Because I always tell people nine years ago when my husband was diagnosed with cancer, wow, nine years ago, there was not a lot that, you know, cancer was still, they were still learning a lot about it. Nine years later, there's so much success around people beating it. You know, so I always tell people, you know, you've been diagnosed and if you can come and we can get yourself organized, that's one less thing you have to worry about. And then you're going to beat this and it's all done. You've lived through something that you've had to go through the worst case scenario already. You know, so we get a little bit of both. It is interesting. I work with a lot of employers. So if an employer hears that their employee has been diagnosed, the employer is paying for the employee to engage Lola and say, you know what, contact them. We're paying for those hours so that you can talk with somebody confidentially and they can navigate you through making sure all your affairs are in order. So sometimes it it happens right at the diagnosis because the employer knows they're going to have leave of absence. They're going to have forms they need to fill out, maybe claims that need to be taken care of. So we get them a little bit ahead of time. And, And during that initial intake, one of the questions we ask is, you know, who in your family has access to your bank accounts? Like who in your family has access to paying your bills and do they know when the money comes in and where where the money goes out and you know, how many bank accounts do you have? And so we start asking them those questions because those are the hiccups that families face at the end. And when we do get them at the end and they're in hospice, if they've still got mental capacity, we're able to help them with legal documents and making sure those things are connected for them. Because on the other side of that, if they don't have their banking set up and they don't have another signer, that that very minute when somebody passes away, the family just falls apart because they go to the bank and they try to get money out and they can't get it. Or um, yeah, they try to, they start navigating all those things. And so, yeah, we try to get them as, as soon as we can. I'd like to get them sooner, but it's hard at the end. On average, and I know this is a very broad question, so you may not even be able to relate it to like a number, but 
on average, how long does it take to get somebody's affairs in order? So if it's legal documents, and and from that standpoint, if it's just the documents, it can take up to 48 hours with attorneys that we work with in Texas. We've uh, been able to navigate some really great law firms and lawyers that when we contact them and say, we've got an end of life situation, can you do the documents? We have about a 48 to 72 hour at the longest end, 72 hours but I've done them in 24 hours for somebody in the hospital that's going to be discharged the next day. So we're able to get a team together to get the documents. If we're looking at everything from A to Z, where the DD-214 is, the discharge papers for the military, so that the family has navigation, benefits and all that, it probably could take maybe two days if they're diligent. We know we can get all the questions. I would have thought four weeks. They buy our playbook and then they're like, whoa, this is something I'm like, you can take you if you're if you're okay and you've got time, do a little at a time. And as a matter of fact, we work when we work with especially cancer diagnosis, you know, we when somebody's been diagnosed, that's the best time for them when they're sitting there and they're going through treatment to be going through the playbook and saying, well, you know, this is good because somebody's going to need to know how to access and my bank accounts and somebody needs to know how I pay my bills and, and what happens to my animals, you know, if something happens to me and it could just be a hospitalization. So it really is. We try to tell people if on the fast track, they can do it in two days if they work through it diligently. But if it's somebody that's got some bandwidth and time, um, it can take, you know, a month. You know, we, we have classes that are free to the public and you can sign up and go to a, a church and they can, they walk you through the playbook as part of their community service to make sure you've got all your affairs in order. Cause where do people go when somebody passes away? Their pastor. And then they're asking for help. And so they're like, you know what, we have an invested effort here to make sure that they've got their affairs in order so that we can help them. And the the priests love it because they're like, we we see it coming. We know when families, if we can get them ahead of time prepared um, and have all their affairs in order, then it's less work and the grief can happen. I always tell people it's so important to grieve. And even when you're sick, it's important to grieve. So, you know, trying to get the affairs in order is really important. So if we have listeners that are listening in and maybe are supporting someone at home that's already home on hospice, it's not too late. They can still reach out, contact, and get moving forward with setting up the affairs. Absolutely. Absolutely. And we work um, across the country virtually. So we're from San Antonio, but we have no, no boundaries in the sense of what we do and the work that we do. If we have somebody, we just had somebody in Atlanta, Georgia that needed help with a guardianship. And it was pretty quick. And we just got on the phone with our local Texas attorneys and everybody went to law school. So people know people all over the place and they'll pick up the phone and call and say, hey, we've got this organization we work with called Lola. They've got a client in your neck of the woods. This is kind of what we're doing for them. We're giving them this type of reduction in charge because it's an end of life client. Would this be something you'd be willing to take? So we, we really lean on our partners to help us facilitate finding those good attorneys in other states and other partners, financial advisors, even somebody that, you know, has a 401k, you know, it's like, what are you going to do with it? Where are the beneficiaries? How are things listed? And I've had families that in Anacortes, Washington, that with children that um, mom passed away and she never put a beneficiary on her, her IRAs. And the Edward Jones person was like, you know what? I kept telling her, you need to come in and you need to put somebody down, but she had minors. Her children were minors. And so she didn't know who to list. And so she listed nobody and it. It ended up, you know, having to, to create a probate, you know, and those kids, if they would have, she would have listed her sister or somebody um, that could have been transferred immediately and the kids would have had access to the money. So sometimes it's those little things that people need to know that, I mean, we, we really pride ourselves in being able to help people all over the country. That's wonderful. 
So you've talked a lot about this playbook. I would love it if you could just kind of highlight what that is, because I think that's an incredible tool that you shared with me, but I would love for our listeners to learn kind of what that is. Yeah. So the playbook is really based off of my dad. He was Mr. Planner, Mr. Plan A, Plan B, Plan C. And we sat down and went through everything in his office, in his file cabinet, and we put it into a notebook and we broke it into four sections. So this is a a, a notebook that is printed out and you can do it downloadable if you would like a downloadable version. If you're a, a person that likes to, you know, put fill in the blanks on, on your computer and save as. But basically it's four sections, your personal information. So what goes on the death certificate? You know, a lot of times funeral directors will say people get stuck not knowing mother's maiden's mom's maiden name, which goes on a death certificate, mom's mom's maiden name. Sometimes it's the people in, in this personal section your children, your family members, the people that when you go to the hospital, you don't want to come see you in that beautiful nightgown that they give you. Um, And there are people that you would want to be in your circle. And then who are your block and tacklers? So that first section is really your personal information. The second section is your financial, which is, you know, where do you bank? What kind of insurance do you have? How is your car insurance handled? Who's your insurance agent? And then the third section is your life infrastructure, everything that makes you you. So everything from the organizations that you volunteer for, AARP member, AAA, you know, all those things that when you pass away or somebody is trying to notify, hey, we need to cancel these payments because AARP comes out January 12th every year for me. You know, it's an annual thing, but it just hits my credit card. My kids wouldn't know about it if I didn't have it listed. So the third section is like the infrastructure. What makes you, you, you know, do you have safety deposit boxes? Uh, do you have stuff? Um, do you have what p- assets? And people will say, oh, I don't have anything. I'm like, well, do you have emotional assets? Things that you'd want to pass down to children or friends that somebody would look at and go, this is just a rock, but little do you know, it was a rock that you got from Yosemite, right? You know, it's an important rock, or maybe it's the rock that you were at when your husband proposed to you. So people would look at it and say, it's just a rock, but we, we go through that in that third section of emotional assets. And then we, the final section is your final wishes. And it's how you want to be remembered, uh, making sure you have your will intact. For families that come to me and say, I can't afford to pay for a will, if they can't afford the, the redux, reduction in prices that we offer, we work with them. There's some states that do handwritten wills. So we walk them through what they think that they should um, notify, you know, how they should do it, but then notify an attorney just to review it for them to make sure that they have it all in in order. So that last section really is kind of the advanced directive, state by state. So if you're moving in between states, that they have one for every state that you're moving through. The DNR, same thing, the do not resuscitate. And then most importantly, at the end of the last section is who's in charge of your body when you die? And have you talked to your children, your blended family about who's going to make decisions for you and what's going to happen? And these, this playbook, it's, it's four sections, but through it, we're walking through stories. So there's case studies to show somebody, hey, this is what happened over here with this family. The dad you know, was remarried and his children wanted him to be buried with their mom. And so there was a lot of negotiation and conversation. So as you're going through this playbook, you're actually having those meaningful conversations that are difficult, but it also gives you the tools to say, you know, I better talk to my children because what's going to happen is I'm going to die. And my new wife and I have made plans to be buried over here together. And they're going to want me to be buried with their mom. So I'm not going to be here to have this conversation. So it'd be good for me to have this, this conversation now. So, because that's where, I mean, 90% of our families are blended, you know, and nobody wants to talk about it, but it gets messy afterwards. Absolutely. I love that families have this opportunity all over the country too, because I think that we've had families with wonders and worries who maybe they're getting support and they're living in Texas, but home for them as another state. And that's where they intend on being buried or having their funeral. 
So you are navigating moving a body and setting up support in a place that's not where you are currently. And I think that that's great to have a service that can help handle that. Absolutely. I think people, what I was looking for when I was going through this with my husband, I was navigating two adult children. So I always tell people, it doesn't matter how old your kids are. They're your kids. They're your babies. And so when you're navigating a diagnosis and when you're going through it, I, I always think about my, my own personal experience. I was looking, I was Googling. I needed somebody to tell me, how is this going to look? Like, do I have my kids in the room? Do I not have my kids in the room? I get a lot of families that call me and say, my husband wants to go home and he wants to die at home. And I always ask him, well, how old are your kids? And what room are you going to have him be in? And have you talked to your children about this? Because not that death is beautiful, but you can make this transition just a beautiful thing for your loved one and your kids and that you're teaching them how to approach and transition through death. And if your kids are, you're going to put your husband in the living room, your kids are never going to come through that room because they're going to associate that room with his death, depending on how it's handled. And it's really important for for families to know that ahead of time, because I couldn't, I couldn't find anybody to tell me. So a lot of times it is saying to somebody, I know your husband wants to go home, but is that the right choice for you and your children after this? Because you're going to be the one having to go through this, move through this afterwards with them. So talk to me a little bit about, I know that companies are often connecting with Lola as well for their employees, but how can somebody connect with Lola who might be interested in getting services on an individual basis? Sure. So one of two ways they can Email us at info at lossoflifeadvocates.com. Emails are confidential, so they can reach out to us through that meaningful way, or they can call us at 210-802-2224. Our answering service will get them moved into our triage group. Shelly, who works with me, she's my, my director of first impressions. She's amazing. She usually will answer the calls, if not me. And we pretty much try to see who the best fit is. And we have advocates that we work with all over the country. Sometimes we'll, depending on the the type of situation, we'll keep it in-house, but anybody can reach out to us via phone or email and look at our website, lossoflifeadvocates.com. And there's several places to contact us there and get our forms and look at, you know, the, the playbooks and see if that's something they want. And the other thing that we do for families is we offer a buy hours, not flowers. So when people are going through this loss or it's an impending loss and they're trying to figure out what to do to help a family or a diagnosis, there's meal train to write to, to get meals ready for a family and kind of keep that going. Um, but sometimes our services are gifted as ours to a family just to get organized and prepared. And somebody will say, I don't know how prepared they are. I don't know if they know where their documents are, but I just would love to gift them your services. And it's just a phone call and it's a conversation and we see what we can do to jump in and help. For families that have lots of kids that they're trying to navigate soccer games, football games, keep the kids normalized to a certain extent. We offer, you know, being able to help them fill out the forms. You know, maybe it's a claim form that they've got critical illness or they've got a benefit that will pay them something for that cancer diagnosis. And so we can help them manage that process and we get releases and HIPAA forms so we can make the calls for them and inquire. And there's, you know, one of those things that we do is we'll find money. So a lot of times I'll work with somebody and say, oh, you have a critical illness in your benefit. You know that you you can get $5,000. You've been paying for that as an employee. Work with that to help them find money when they need it the most. Yeah, that's wonderful. I think of all the people that I know that I just want to go back and be like, oh, we should have done Lola. I think it's great. It's an incredible company that you've made. Is there anything else that you would like to share that maybe I didn't touch on with our listening population? think that we're just really honored. I will tell you, I worked with the Children's Bereavement Center here in San Antonio. 
And Marion Sokol is Dr. Marion Sokol is one of my favorite all time people. And when I found out about Wonders and Worries, I was like, oh my God, it was just a genie in a bottle for me. It was just, it can't, your organization is wonderful. I love what you do. I am able to help more families navigate to you and your team all over because parents, you know, they worry about their children. And when I get those intake calls and I'm helping families, if I can say, oh my gosh, there's an organization that can actually navigate your child through this, this stress that you're going through. You don't have to do it for them. You can be a partner in it with them, but you've got a team to help you navigate your children. And if something happens to you and you don't make it through and you transition and you graduate to heaven, you've got another team in the Children's Bereavement Center and Children's Bereavement Centers all over the country that can navigate your family. And I think that the greatest gift that we can give our kids is teaching them how to navigate hard things. And sometimes those hard things are those diagnoses that we may beat or that we may not beat. And the best thing we can do is have people and professionals around us to give us the tools to help our children know that life and death are okay. You know, we, we celebrate the, ba- the baby that comes home and we celebrate somebody after they've lived, but that time in between before somebody passes away or that during that major diagnosis is so incredibly important. And I think it's a gift that families and parents can give to their children to say, it's, you're going to have hard things happen in your life. And if I can help you navigate and teach you that and model for you to look this in the eye and say, it's going to be okay. Thank you for tuning in to our podcast today. Please subscribe and continue to check back as our content is ever evolving. For questions or specific content related requests, please send an email to podcast at wondersandworries.org. 